Uh, that's the second book of the New Testament. It's about three-fourths of the way through your Bible if you're beginning with Genesis. <laughs> um, and so we're going to be continuing in the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Um, what week is this in this study, Kevin? Seven. So seventh week, we've reached chapter 2. We should finish up by about 2024. But no, but all kidding aside, before we get into the text, I just want to open by saying, and you could probably say this about any text we're going to exegete and teach like we do here week in and week out, but I kind of liken this text to an, an iceberg. Um, and what I mean by that is that scientists say that about 90% of an iceberg's mass lies beneath the surface of the water. Don't believe me, just ask the Titanic. That's not a joke, just like fact, right? You can Wikipedia it right now. But um, it happened, and it's real, and it lies about 90% of an iceberg's mass lies beneath the surface of the water. And so you can read Mark chapter 2, 1 through 12, and you can kind of glean some things and pick up on some things. But I hope by unpacking the word, we kind of see underneath the hood of the text and see all that's going on and who Jesus actually is. We answer the question we've been looking to answer all series long, who is Jesus? So Mark chapter 2, 1 through 12, we'll start in verse 1. You can follow along with me. It says this, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorifying God, glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that we have language to communicate it. God, we have mouths to declare it. We have ears to hear it. I pray you make our hearts likewise, that we would hear and receive what you have for us today by your Spirit's power. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So there are two parts to this text. Verse 5 kind of serves as the apex or kind of the fulcrum of the text, if you will. Uh, so you have what goes on in verses 1 through 5, and it's Jesus dealing with uh, this paralytic and these four friends, and it kind of ramps up to Jesus' statement in verse 5 when Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Then you have the second part of this text, which kind of careems off of verse 5, and it's Jesus dealing with the scribes and their attitudes and their hearts. And I kind of have uh, coined the phrase for the first half of the text, a radical act, and the second half is what I'm going to call a radical Claim. So we'll get into a radical act. Let's read the text one more time, verses 1 through 5. It says this, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. This is probably not Jesus' house. Commentators say it would have been probably Peter's house. Uh, but because Jesus' ministry was centered in Capernaum, this was kind of HQ, ground zero for Jesus. And at this point, 
his would-be disciples. And if you remember a few verses ago, back in chapter 1, Jesus had to kind of uh, come off the grid, right? He was healing people. There was a huge following. And as Kevin taught us, he really did not come to heal primarily. He came and his purpose was to preach. And so Jesus kind of went clandestine under the grid. He has resurfaced here. Everybody's heard about it, and it's being reported. So people are flocking to Jesus' house. Facebook Live is blowing up. The Internet is broken. Right, and it says there was no more people, there was no more room, rather, not even at the door. And Jesus was preaching, which, as we learned, was his primary purpose. And it says, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Verse 4, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. It goes on to say in verse 12 that he rose and immediately, if you remember that's Mark's favorite word, uh, it says he picked up his bed and he went out before them all. So they were all amazed and they glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. So I want to make two observations in the first half of this sermon or message. Um, And observation number one is this, super obvious. So obvious you may just kind of blow over it or not really give any attention or heed to it. But the observation is this, that the paralytic was brought to Jesus. The paralytic was brought to Jesus, right? This may seem obvious, like I said, and by definition, a paralytic would have to be brought anywhere because he was, well, paralyzed, right? But this actually points at a key spiritual concept, and the concept is this. Nobody comes to Jesus on their own. Nobody. Nobody initiates the Godhead. While this is a true historical account of an actual paralytic who receives healing, it is also symbolic of the fact that no one comes to Christ on their own. We are all as powerless in our souls to come to Christ as this paralytic was to walk to Jesus. The scriptures say that all of our postures, the default posture of the human heart is one of spiritual paralysis. In Ezekiel 36, in the Old Testament, it says we have hearts of stone. That's the bent of the human heart. It's lifeless. It's immobile. It's unflexible. It does not move. It is not soft to the heart of God. The New Testament, Paul would say in Ephesians 2, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. In Romans 8, Paul would even say that we cannot come to God like it's impossible for man in his natural state, which is one of sin, to come to God. Which means, if you are a believer in here, and most of you would profess to be by the grace of God, that either... Someone brought you to Jesus like the paralytic in our story and they shared the good news of the gospel with you because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God or that Christ came to you in a radical act of conversion a la Paul on the Damascus road. But nobody initiates a relationship with Jesus, which means for us application wise that if the lost are to be found and the gospel is to be spread, they must be brought to Christ just like this paralytic was brought by his friends. So just, again, get really practical. I think this is just a good time to kind of ask, hey, who are you bringing to church? And like a self-righteous preacher that I am today, I have friends in attendance that I have brought to church. Um, No, but that's not, I mean, that's not so I can pat myself on the back at this part of the sermon. Um, But it is to ask, are you inviting anyone to the gathering? And the reason we bring them in is not so we can get a crowd. It's not to get a budget that's bigger. It's not to pad Pastor Kevin's pockets. And so people will hear the gospel and they will come to know and love Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It's to see people come from out of the fold of God, come to know the heart of a father who loves them and cares for them and would love them so much that he would lay down his only son to bring them back into relationship with him. 
And as great as that is, as much as we should invite people to church, as easy as we want to make that, the scriptures are also clear that a church invitation is not the same as gospel evangelism. We should be sharing the gospel verbally. And I know, like I want to get really tender here. I know that's hard. I know it's awkward. I know it's much easier to leave a track behind on a urinal in a bathroom than to have a face-to-face conversation with a real person who could reject you or mock you or say harsh and, and critical things about you. But, and I don't want to shame anybody here, so I just want to say, maybe lay my cards on the table, um, that the best way I have found to share the gospel and to just talk about my life with Jesus, and I don't do this perfectly at all. There are plenty of times where I hear the Spirit knocking, and I shy away from that, and I refuse it, and, I, and I'm convicted of it. But the best way i found to share the gospel is not by telling people how awesome my life is because of Jesus. That is preaching a false gospel. Jesus never sounds like a salesman in the gospels. In fact, he is like the anti-salesman. Like, deny yourself and take up your cross doesn't get you many followers. There's a reason Walmart and Amazon and, and you know, Starbucks don't use that. It's not popular. No one wants to hear it. And Jesus never promises to remove our pain and suffering, at least not yet, not this side of, of death and eternity. In fact, Jesus guarantees just the opposite. He says, in this life, you will face trouble. If they hated me like the head of the house, they're going to despise you, right? Jesus promises difficulty. He guarantees suffering, but he also guarantees his peace and his presence in the midst of it. And that is something no other God can promise you. No other God can promise you. So the best way I have found to share the gospel is simply by being authentic about the difficulties and the struggles in my life. Like if you talk to people, not many people the fact that they suffer and life is hard, but that's the reality for all of us. And when you give people kind of a peek behind the veil, they see authenticity, they see reality, and they see you actually have a hope in the midst of your brokenness, something the world cannot offer us. So I just want to be really honest to other people about my own sin, my own personality flaws, my own, you know, just time and time again where I walk away from the Lord. But I also want to talk about how Jesus is walking with me and transforming me through those times. I want to affirm to other people the fact that life is hard, And pain is real, but God is good. And Jesus is faithful to meet us in our brokenness and to carry us through it. Second observation from this half of the text is this, that Jesus commends the faith of these four friends, and he even heals the paralytic because of it. Jesus commends the faith of these four friends. He even heals the paralytic because of it. Look at verse 5 with me. It says this, when Jesus saw their faith, There is plural, if you'll notice that. I'm not an English major, but there is plural. So he is looking at the four friends, lowering this man down from the roof. And he says to the paralytic, singular, son, your sins are forgiven. The faith of these four friends was actually a precursor to the paralytic's healing. One commentator said this. He says that this act of bringing the paralytic and lowering him down and removing the roof, this act proved the faith of the paralytic's friends. He says they counted on Jesus healing their friend because it would be a lot harder to bring him back up through the roof than it was to lower him down. I love this. He says they counted on him walking out of the room. Now, just a disclaimer, this does not mean that God is kind of bound by our faith. He's not bound by us in his work of salvation or healing or the supernatural. But this does show us there are times when our faith can and does influence God's work. 
But for our time today, I really want to focus on the fact that Jesus commends their faith. He recognizes it. He sees it. He draws attention to it. And he acts because of it. And I think if Jesus were to commend the faith of these four men, we would be wise not only to commend their faith, but also to copy their faith. What's the root of their faith? How do these men get a faith like this? And so some people may say, well, these people have a desperate faith. These four guys have a, have a desperate faith. Man, they, they opened the home of a roof they didn't own. Like, that's desperate. If your faith causes an insurance claim, it's probably desperate, right? That's probably a good term to use. But more than desperate, I think their faith was realistic. I think it was rooted in reality. M. Scott Peck once said that mental health is the dedication to reality at all costs. And I would say spiritual health is no different. See, at the most basic level, these four men saw their friend had a need that only Jesus could meet. And the margin between what their friend needed and what they could provide is what drove them to Jesus in the first place. And the truth is that as followers of Christ, we all need to have this perspective about us. We need to see the world as it actually is. The problem and difficulty thus uh, for us, though, is that we live in a world that loves to distort reality. I would say it even specializes in it. All right, we inhabit a world where conversations are cut to 140 characters and broadcast for anybody to see, and our self-projections are hand-picked and hyper-filtered. T.S. Eliot once said that humankind cannot bear much reality. So we obsessively and compulsively run from reality because we're afraid of who and what we'll find if we were to actually face ourselves and actually face God. Apart from the noise, apart from the sound, apart from the interruptions, the notifications, we're afraid. And so we cover ourselves with 21st century fig leaves. Ronald Rollheiser says this about our obsession with the shallow and superficial. He says, it's not that we have anything against God, depth, and spirit. We would like these. It is just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. We are more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, and more interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, the shopping mall, and the fantasy life they produce in us than we are in the church and spiritual things. He goes on to say that we are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. So the challenge for us then becomes, how do we cut through that busyness? How do we cut through the distraction to see the world as it actually is? Or to say it another way, how do we see the world as Jesus sees it? I think the answer to this is just through a steady intake of the Word of God. It is a regular, and by regular, I don't mean, and no offense here, nothing against this, I don't mean the verse of the day that shows up in your email inbox and you just glance through it and say, cool, delete. I don't mean even the, the Sunday gathering, although that is absolutely necessary for Christ-likeness and growth. What I do mean is that it's, it's just unhurried, just undistracted time alone with God, not just reading the Word, but letting the Word read you free from notifications, free from multitasking. And I am, and I'll like nerd on you a little bit, I'm a seven on the Enneagram. Like multitasking is all I want to do in my flesh. It's just all I want to do. But this, this is so necessary to see life as it actually is. Because here's the thing, it's only in God's word that we will see that what our world needs most is not the cultural anesthetic of an Instagram scroll. It's not the newest Netflix binge to kind of waste another weekend. What our world needs most is to come face to face with the maker of reality who sees them in their sin and loves them in spite of it. So 
We need to see the world as it actually is. Uh, and that is the second half of the first half of the sermon. And then the second half, verses 5 through 11, is what I'm going to call a radical claim. A radical claim. I think it says verses 6 through 11 in your worship guide. If you want to put 5, because 5 is really the, the crux and what 6 through 11 come off of. So verses 5 through 11. So here's the thing about Jesus. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus has this really cool, really brilliant, and probably sometimes maddening way, depending on who you are, of just directing a conversation in the way he wants it to go and it needs to go. Right? So Jesus is asked a question and he poses a question in return. And he's like, I'm not answering yours until you answer mine. Right? And the Pharisees are just like, you know, it's like, we're trapped. And they leave. Or a lady comes and she wants to have some small talk with Jesus. She's like, hey, what's up? Like, the well looks nice. There's water. Your hair, did you straighten it today, Jesus? And he's like, hey, you've had five husbands and you're currently sleeping with some dude for rent. Just like drops bombs on people and gets to the soul level of a conversation, right? And this is no different in Mark chapter 2. So you have a room full of people. There's scribes, as it says. There's probably Pharisees, commentators say. There's um, Jews. There's no doubt people who are coming once again for healing from Jesus. This rabbi who is touring the country, he's in Capernaum. He can heal me. I've heard about this guy. There's a hole in the roof. There's four vandals up on top thanks to that. And there's a paralytic being lowered down through the ceiling like it's to, you know, halftime at the Super Bowl or something. And Jesus, rather than addressing the scribes or the sick or the whole or the friends and especially addressing the paralytic's condition in a physical sense, chooses to address the sin in his heart. Jesus was guiding the direction of this whole encounter with one very powerful and one very purposeful statement. Namely, your sins are forgiven. I think Jesus was doing two things with this statement. The first thing is this, and this goes along with what we just talked about, but Jesus was making a statement about reality. Jesus was making a statement about reality. In saying to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, rather than pick up your mat and walk, which if you go back to verse 9, Jesus could have said that. Right? He even says, like, well, why, why, what's, the, what's the big deal? Could have said this, could have said that. Go ahead, take up your bed and walk, and he walks. Jesus chose to say, pick up, or, or your sins are forgiven. But in Jesus choosing to say your sins are forgiven, Jesus is showing that what this man needs most isn't to have his legs healed, it is to have his sin forgiven. By saying to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, Jesus is just showing he hasn't just come to put a band-aid on brain cancer, he has come to eradicate the disease. Jesus is not about symptomatic, kind of like behavioral modification, Tony Robbins course, self-help spirituality. That is not what Jesus is doing. Jesus doesn't want to just prune the fruit of sin. He wants to take it at its root, which is in the human heart. As 1 John 3.8 says, Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. Because ultimately, just really honestly, what good does it do this guy to walk around on earth for 30, 40, 50 years if ultimately he spends eternity burning in hell? And that's really morbid, but that's just the reality. It's the reality, and it's the reality for us as well. It's why even as we prayed earlier today and we pray every Sunday, right after the, in the Lord's Prayer, right after we ask for daily provision from God, we ask and we're reminded to seek daily forgiveness and eternal pardon based on the blood of Christ and Christ alone. I love what Pastor Warren Wearsby says about this. He says, forgiveness is the greatest miracle Jesus ever performs. It meets the greatest need, it costs the greatest price, and it brings the greatest blessing and the most lasting result. 
The second thing Jesus was doing in his statement in verse 5 is he was making a statement of identity. Jesus was making a statement of identity. So, we've been asking all series long the question, who is Jesus? Jesus gives us three statements or three kind of indicators of identity, if you will, in verses 5 through 11 to tell us exactly who he is. The first one is this, that Jesus reads the minds, or as this passage says, the hearts of the scribes. Jesus reads the minds and the hearts of the scribes. So Jesus, verse 5 says, hey, your sins are forgiven. Verse 6, it says this, that some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. So I don't know if you caught that as we first glanced through and read through this passage, but what the scribes say next isn't something they're actually saying. It is something they're thinking, right? And then in verse 8, it says that Jesus perceived in his spirit that they questioned him. Should have been clue number one. If someone answers questions you never verbalized, that's weird, right? Like, that's different. Not many people do that. So I just want to make one more observation on this point, and then we'll go ahead to point number two. And then this is really, I thought this was like super cool, but I could just be a nerd as well. I know I am a little bit. So in John chapter 1, John reveals Jesus to be the word of God, right? John 1.1 opens up similar and kind of parallels Genesis 1.1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. I used to read that and like, what is he talking about? Like, what, what is this guy doing? Do I just not understand culturally what's going on? But in verse 14, he identifies this word for us. He says that in, uh, in verse 14, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? Timely here as we near Christmas. But John identifies Jesus as the eternal incarnate word of God. And then in Hebrews 4.12, this is like the Bethmore poster verse, right? Get your coffee cups out, ladies. <laughs> but Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. And get this, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So I love the consistency of the Bible that in John 1, Jesus is identified as the Word of God. And then in Mark chapter 2, the Word of God, Jesus, does exactly what Hebrews 4.12 says that it does, that it's piercing soul and spirit. It's discerning the thoughts and intentions of the hearts of the scribes in our text and of us here today as we ask the question, who's Jesus? Who's Jesus? The second indicator of Jesus' identity is that Jesus forgives sins. Jesus forgives sins. So in the Old Testament, a priest could forgive sins if a sacrifice was made or like certain laws were abided, right, or like some ritual was performed. So you guys remember last week when Bonnie read that awesome text from Leviticus, no, uh, Meredith read the awesome text from Leviticus 14. Anybody else remember that? It was like disturbingly long and like complicated. The poor leper, right, like I almost laughed in the middle of it. I'm like, these poor people, I'm so glad I'm not an Old Testament leper. Um, thank you, Jesus. But I mean, that was like rigorous stuff they had to do to be cleansed, right? Am I, am I right? Do you guys remember that? Okay. So, um, so the priest could kind of say, okay, because God said this is what you have to do to be cleansed, and you've done all that, I can say you're cleansed. God forgives your sins. Or the priest offers some sacrifice. All of that's going on. And they could say, okay, your sins are forgiven. You're good with God. In the Old Testament, a prophet could also declare, the Lord also has put away your sins. We see this in 2 Samuel with Nathan saying this to David. But here in Mark chapter 2, there is no sacrifice that's been made. There's no ritual that's been performed. And Jesus is not speaking for God. Jesus is speaking as God. He is declaring sins to be forgiven on the basis of faith alone. This is what the scribes are so indignant about. And this is ultimately what got Jesus killed. 
So in the Old Testament, blasphemy was punishable by death. Scholars even say, and I think this is so beautiful. It makes me love Jesus more, and I'm not making that up. Scholars say that when Jesus says in Mark chapter 2, like we're in the second chapter of this book. This is early in Jesus' ministry. When Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, Jesus was already looking to the cross. He was already choosing to lay his life down for us. He knew what this would mean for him and his future. This was not some throwaway statement by Jesus. It was calculated and it was extremely costly. Look at what the scribes say in verse 7. It says that they asked, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now notice the irony there. Okay, They're right that only God can forgive sins. They are wrong that Jesus is blaspheming. If Jesus is anyone other than the Son of God, he's blaspheming. They have a real case, and they would have been right to execute him according to their laws. So Jesus appeals to them. Verses 8 through 11 is this apologetic to the scribes to prove that Jesus is who he says he is. And what I want you to see here is that in Jesus' appeal, Jesus is loving his enemies. Jesus is loving his enemies. He knows the scribes' hearts. He knows that their, their want for control. He knows their motivations. He knows they want to put him to death. He knows they love their power and their control over the people. And still Jesus is trying to sway them to belief. As 2 Peter 3.9 says, Not wanting anyone to perish, but that all would come to repentance. So Jesus asks this. He says, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Now, when I first read that, I thought Jesus is kind of saying tomato, tomato. Not exactly what's going on here. The argument that Jesus is making is that in one sense, it is much easier to say your sins are forgiven because that statement cannot be disproved. There is no accountability for it, right? Whereas if you say, take up your bed and walk, it either happens or it doesn't. Like, you're legit or you're a fraud, and we're putting you to death, Jesus. But on the other hand, In a much, much deeper way, it is so much easier to say, take up your bed and walk, than it is to say your sins are forgiven, because clearly it is easier to heal a man's legs than it is to heal his soul. So when Jesus says in verses 10 through 11, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home, and it happens, like dude gets up, takes his mat, and walks out of there, the argument Jesus is making is this. That if Jesus can do the latter, namely heal a man's legs, then you can trust him to do the former, namely heal a man's heart. And if he can heal his legs and he can heal his heart, then he has authority to forgive sins. And he is, in fact, the son of God. And he is, in fact, worthy of your worship. He is the son of God. Which brings us to the third indicator of his identity. And it's Jesus' own self-identification. Jesus' self-identification. So the verse we just read, verse 10, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. This is Christ's favorite title of himself in the Gospels. A, uh, Pastor A.T. Robertson says this about Jesus choosing to use this title. He says that it was a messianic title free from political and nationalistic sentiment. Jesus could have more commonly referred to himself as King or Christ, But those titles, in the ears of his Jewish audience, sounded like the one who will defeat the Romans. Son of Man, Robertson says, was Christ's favorite designation of himself, a claim to be the Messiah in terms that could not easily be attacked. Now, the Son of Man, um, that title itself, is used two different ways in the Old Testament. 
So in the book of Ezekiel, son of man is used over 90 times, and it literally just means a son of a man, right? Like a calf could say, I'm the son of a cow, uh, or a colt could say, I'm the son of a horse. So when Daniel says, or Ezekiel says, excuse me, over 90 times, son of man, son of man, son of man, he's just talking about a common person. It had been like dude, you know, in, in our modern day vernacular. There's nothing special about this. In the other place, or the other way we find this used is in the book of Daniel, specifically what Emily read for us earlier, Daniel 7, 13 through 14. But I'll read it again. It says this in verse 13, that I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, speaking of God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is a clear reference to the long-awaited Messiah of the Old Testament, and it is clearly the use that Jesus has in mind when he calls himself the Son of Man. Now, the interesting part about all of this is that as people would have heard Jesus teach, as they would have watched him live, and as they would have watched him and heard him call himself the Son of Man, they would have had to decide which title did Jesus have for himself. What was a fitting reference for the Son of Man? Was Jesus just a common man, or was he in fact the anointed one, the one that all peoples, nations, and languages would serve? And I think this question is still relevant for us today. As you sit here this afternoon, the question is, who do you believe Jesus to be? As Jesus would ask Peter, who do you say that I am? And I would not uh, say, not just who do you say or believe Jesus to be with your lips, but what would your life declare that you believe Jesus to be? Is Jesus simply another Jewish rabbi? Is he a miraculous healer? Maybe more loosely, is he a blasphemer, a blasphemer and a lunatic and one who deserved, in fact, to die on a cross? Or is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the Christ? Is he both the Son of God and the Son of Man? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you, God, that even as you argue with scribes and love your enemies, God, that while we were still sinners, you died for us. God, we thank you for forming us, God, more into the image of, of your Son. I pray that you would do that for your church today. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Every, every Sunday we uh, gather, we share the Lord's Supper together. Um, that might be unusual for some, but that's what we do. It's just a very practical and simple way that we're reminded of has done for us in uh, breaking his body for us and shedding his blood for us. And, and so we do that to remember that and to rejoice in that. We don't come to this table to mourn Christ's death because Christ was risen. So we don't come to mourn, but we come to celebrate. But we, it's also an opportunity to 